Okay, so tonight, <clears throat> tonight what we're going to do is um, we're going to just take uh, one part of this next section. So this is session three. Um, next week we'll do um, session four. And then I uh, wanted you to know, and we'll communicate this, uh, I meant to communicate this earlier to everybody really, but we'll, we'll communicate this um, to everyone that the th for Thanksgiving Eve, which is in two Thursday nights, two weeks tonight, we, we will not have anything here. Um, we were thinking about, thinking about having a Thanksgiving Eve service kind of thing, but without nursery and without dinner, and it just felt like that's just not gonna serve our families so really well. So what we would encourage you towards though is possibly if you have um, room in your schedule on that busy weekend to invite one another over to your house um, to, for families to invite singles over, college students if they're around town or whatever, to, to, um, to make, it, make it something more, um, I mean, still, still have a time to get together and spend time with each other, but, but we won't be meeting here. Also, just so it's on your mind, we uh, will not be meeting on the 21st of December, nor the 28th. So those two weeks uh, we'll, be, we'll be skipping as well. And um, anyway, so this week will be part one of experiencing the Holy Spirit, uh, baptism and filling in the Holy Spirit. Next week we'll do the second part of this, which it would be preferable to do them together, but there's just um, more information than, than we want for one night. So let me, uh, let me pray again, and we'll jump into this, and then um, we'll break up into groups and have some discussion and prayer. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is true and trustworthy. Thank you that we have the privilege to look at portions of it tonight. And, and then, Lord, would you open our minds to kind of um, understand, uh, grasp the broader Christian world's understanding of this and and then to bring some clarity to what we would believe and anticipate here and expect. And between this week and next week, Lord, I ask that you would uh, help continue to refine that which we uh, hold to be a beautiful promise. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the principal concern, this is Sam Storms at the top of the page. He says, the principal concern of the Son, that is Jesus, after his resurrection is the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church for the perpetuation of the divine mission he initiated. So that, I thought that statement, uh, it's not like it's the best statement in the world. It's just that statement kind of encapsulates this reality of why this is a big deal. Uh, Jesus... Jesus, after his resurrection, one, one aspect of the principal, a principal concern he had is the gift of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk a little bit about it Sunday as well. Actually, interestingly enough, in the We Believe series on Sunday mornings, over the next three weeks, we'll be talking about the Holy Spirit as well. Um, and it'll be just hopefully you know, interwoven between Wednesday nights and um, Sunday mornings. Uh, Sunday mornings being a little bit more, um, you know, in line with our statement of faith as far as taking our statement of faith and broadening it out. And I love our statement of faith series, but I'm so looking forward to getting into Genesis and actually studying a passage of Scripture together and diving into that. But um, let me read this story, uh, and then we can just to get an idea of, of, of an example, and then we'll, we'll get into the study. 
Uh, Paula was raised, this is not Paula Sanders, this is just a lady named Paula. Paula was raised in a Christian home where church attendance was commonplace. But it wasn't until she was 11 years old that she began to take a serious interest in who Jesus is. That summer, she attended a church camp and for the very first time, consciously repented of her sins and put her faith in the atoning death of Jesus as her only hope for eternal life. It was a wonderful experience that brought both joy and a sense of relief. She never doubted from that moment on that she was a child of God. The next few years proved difficult for Paula. She was not especially attractive and boys never seemed to pay her much attention. Her grades were average at best and she had a few friends. When she turned 16, Paula was invited to an overnight party where she took her first drink of beer. She won instant acceptance with a small group of classmates who before would hardly give her the time of day. She soon discovered that as long as she joined in on whatever they were doing, they included and affirmed her. Her heart was often troubled as she recognized how her behavior was contrary to what she had been taught in Sunday school, but the fear of rejection was too powerful to overcome. It was not until Paula was in her second year of college that things began to change. She accepted the invitation of a sorority sister to attend a Bible study that met each Wednesday night. It was here that she began to awaken to how far she had wandered from the Lord. She was brokenhearted and grieved that she had lived in such indifference to the Lord's faithful appeal that she returned to her first love. One Wednesday night, she asked that some of the girls in her Bible study group pray for her. Paula knew that they believed in spiritual gifts, but the church she grew up in had always warned against such things. And as they laid hands on her, Paula cried out to Jesus to forgive her for those many years of spiritual apathy. One of the girls praying for Paula then said, O Lord Jesus, we ask that you would pour out your spirit on Paula and empower her to live and witness for you as she never has before. Suddenly, Paula felt a strange warmth envelop her like a blanket. She sensed that uh, what she later described as a geyser erupting from deep within her soul. Not really knowing what was happening, she then began to cry out to Jesus her praise and gratitude, but in words she had never before spoken. The unfamiliarity of her experience was exceeded only by the joy and peace that it brought. From that day to the present, Paula has sought by God's grace to live passionately for the Son of God. From that day to the present, she has also prayed in this strange language, strange language that her friends told her is the gift of speaking in tongues. Now what happened to Paula? If she were to ask you to open the Bible and explain her experience, what texts would you use? What would you call what happened to her? This, this, is, a, this is just a, for us to consider. What, was she baptized in the Holy Spirit? Is that how you would explain it? Was she filled with the Holy Spirit? Was she anointed with the Holy Spirit? Or did she simply experience a renewal of faith and a profound assurance of salvation that the Apostle Paul had in mind in Romans 8:16 when he spoke of the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God? Or was her experience nothing more than the emotional fruit of manipulation by her friends who wanted to win her over to their strange brand of Christianity? So in what follows, we want to spend some time considering those questions together, and there is much confusion today about spiritual experiences like Paula's, and Christians divide over it, churches divide over it, um, and as for Paula, she's just glad it happened, you know? Um, some of us, all of us maybe, have all had different experiences uh, in different ways. There was a, um, uh, was a pastor from... 1993 to 2006, and then in 2006 in the fall, I heard 
um, a message by a man who was just preaching the gospel, and it, as, it is as though um, it was like shackles fell off, and my heart was filled with joy, and I sang out, and we were both joined. It happened to join at the same time. There was no prayer language, but there was, or, or, or other kind of language, there was just simply significant joy in us. And I, I look back and I, sometimes I think, okay, was I saved as a pastor? Was I, was I saved when I was, when I was pastoring in Iowa? Or, or was I saved then in 2006? Or was I really saved back when I was 15? And then this thing that happened in 2006 was a revival, a renewal. Um, happened again in 2015 when I was here, when we were going through the book of Acts. And we were hitting the book of Acts and I was reading a book called Holy Fire by R.T. Kendall, and it lit, it lit me, it took me to God's word, it lit me on fire for Christ. I, I loved Christ, I loved his word, I loved, I loved everything about him. I didn't want to do anything but spend time with him, and I think I shared some of that in, my very, in the first week when I was talking about that. What was that? Um, that was significant renewal and revival. Um, Anyway, there's those kind of questions. There's, there's specific instances in people's lives, and some of you in this room who have had the experience of what you would call, what you've, been, what you've called or what your church has called, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that means that you've spoken tongues, and that means you've had an experience and of, of, specific, of, of what is a real specific kind of experience. Others of you have grown up in a different kind of church where like baptism of the Spirit is not really mentioned, but uh, being filled with the Spirit has been mentioned. Um, and, uh, and so typically those kind of churches, you know, are, are on different streets, you know. Um, and so we kind of want to look at that whole, that whole thing, what, what it is, not just what it is we believe, but what it is the church believes. What is it that people have believed over the years? What is it that people believe today? Because I, again, I grew up in a church where Baptism in the Holy Spirit just wasn't even, it wasn't even talked about as conversion, like we'll get at, but it's like it was just not mentioned, period. Um, and, and so it was the, for me growing up again, it was the crazy Pentecostals that we needed to have nothing to do with. That's, that's the way I kind of grew up. Um, and... Uh, to, to, to some extent, except my grandmother was a Pentecostal, so, um, and she actually got delivered from smoking, and she was like, all sorts of stuff was happening to her, but, uh, but you know, grandma's a little nuts, so that's what we, we, uh, we kind of jocked up to that. Anyway, so what's at stake? Well, the debate over spirit baptism may be summarized by answering the question, is the Christian's reception of the spirit characterized by one stage or two stages? Just a real kind of simple way to put it. Is the Christian's reception of the Spirit, um, so the receiving of the Spirit, is it characterized by one stage or two stages? Um, now another way to say it is spirit baptism, and, and we're highlighting this word baptism, spirit baptism and initiatory experience for all Christians or a second stage experience that only some receive but all could receive. Or... 
um, another longer way to put it, are all Christians automatically baptized in the Spirit at the moment they first trust in Christ for salvation, or are some, if not most, baptized in the Spirit at some point in life subsequent to their initial conversion? In other words, was Paula baptized in the Spirit at the age of 11 when she trusted Jesus at church camp, or did it happen nine years later during that midweek Bible study? Um, here's some one-stage views. According to interpretations in this category, spirit baptism is simultaneous with and essentially the same as regeneration and conversion. Again, this is what, what, people, what people believe. We're not saying this is what we believe. I'm just saying this is, this is what one stage is. One stage view is that spirit baptism is simultaneous with and essentially the same as regeneration and conversion. And there's little variation among those who espouse this view. Spirit baptism is understood as a phenomenon that comes to all Christians at the moment of the new birth. So the Spirit regenerates us and, and we are immersed in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit. The only significant division among the proponents of this view concerns whether or not that Spirit baptism is experiential. Um, which to me is the weirdest part of that definition. So it's like, is it experiential? Is salvation experiential? Uh, some, like John Stott, who is a wonderful man of God, um, was, and Richard Gaffin, contend that spirit baptism is non-experiential and occurs below the level of human consciousness. In other words, it really happens to you, but you can't feel it or hear it or see it. These guys were born again, spirit-filled men, you know, who said stuff like this. So others, such as James Dunn, argue that spirit baptism is a felt and often dramatic experience. An example of this view may be seen in the life of George Whitfield, great evangelist of the First Great Awakening. Whitfield believed that whereas spirit baptism was simultaneous with conversion, it was also inescapably and even indescribably experiential. And this is the way he refers to it. This is, this is his conversion, and he's saying... This conversion was when he was baptized in the Spirit. After having undergone innumerable buffetings of Satan and many months inexpressible trials by night and day under the spirit of bondage, God was pleased at length to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold on his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me as I humbly hope even to the day of everlasting redemption. But oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Surely it was the day of my espousals, a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. At first my joys were like a spring tide, and as it were, overflowed the banks. Go where I would, I could not avoid singing of psalms aloud. It sounds pretty special. So you see there's a couple of different kinds of one-stage views there. Um, and we'll have opportunities to talk in smaller groups about like what, what we think about stuff like that and just some, just some thoughts on these things. I'll, we'll direct with some questions. Two-stage views. There's many more two-stage views. Uh, two-stage meaning conversion is one stage and then there's something subsequent, something else. That, that is considered a baptism in the Holy Spirit. According to interpretations in this category, spirit baptism is subsequent to and distinct from regeneration and conversion. Generally speaking, history reveals no fewer than six groups that advocate 
the two-stage approach to the Christian's reception and experience. Now, know well, the most exhaustive treatment of these issues is found in this other book that if you're interested in, you know, these, these, the, those two books, actually, those two books are, would be helpful books to read. But here's the first one. I mentioned these guys two weeks ago, three, week, three weeks ago, I guess, the Reformed Sealers. I don't know if you remember that, There's, there were these men like uh, Lloyd-Jones, John Owen, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Goodwin. These, these, are, these are solid theological lovers of God. Um, John Owen wrote like books called The Love of Christ, and he was deep and um, in his love for the Lord. Uh, wise, widely respected, um, and, uh, and uh, to this day, Lloyd-Jones, uh, a hero to me, really, um, uh, a man who was like very articulate, very logical. He was a doctor, uh, very, very clear in his communication and everything. And he was one of these reformed sealers that people who aren't reformed sealers, who, who would be one stage view people or whatever, would kind of look down at Lloyd-Jones for being this kind of guy. Uh, to me, it's compelling. Not that I agree with him entirely, but it's, but, and Richard Sibbs, Richard Sibbs is a, is a Puritan who wrote so much on the love of God, on the love of the Father. And he had real experience, real, real, real experience, real pastoral care, real heart. This man was a spirit-filled man who, who knew God's word, but loved God's people. And so these guys, I know, like, whether you know them or not, it's like the reality, the reality is these men are, are significant men in modern church history over the last number of uh, years. Matter of fact, Richard Sibbs, Richard Sibbs is probably my favorite Puritan, but he, he, uh, because he's just very, very pastoral, and he wrote uh, specifically on the love of the Father because there was so much, for lack of a better word, disinformation or misunderstanding of the love of the Father. It's as though, like, our understanding of penal substitutionary atonement, where like God's wrath was poured out on the Son, it was it it, was, it started to be wrongly thought of, which it's again wrongly thought of uh, today and potentially wrongly preached on. But but it's like the it's like it's like Jesus loves us, but the Father doesn't. The Father's just totally torqued off at us, and He just wants to pour out His wrath on us. And Jesus is saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, settle down." That's not, that's not what we believe about atonement, you know, but that's kind of, kind of the bent that some people start feeling like the Father's filled with wrath, and if it wasn't for Jesus, we would have wrath poured out on us, which is, which is true, but the reality is we wouldn't have Jesus either if it was not for the Father's love. It was the Father's love, the Son's love, the Spirit's love. It was, it was this reality of Trinitarian love. So he, Richard Sibbs, specifically wrote on the love of the Father. Um, you might imagine during Sibbs' day, it's true today as well, but like fathers, fathers did not show very much love proper to their kids. And, um, and not just that then, then like so, so you grow up with a dad who is like not good, not loving at all and very harsh and there's like an immediate connection, right, between your dad and your father, God. And not just that, but then preachers were preaching fire and damnation and all that kind of 
stuff to bring people to. Anyway, Sibs, Sibs was a guy that came against, came, didn't come against it. Well, he came against it by preaching on the Father's love. <laughs> and matter of fact, he preached on it so much. He taught on it so much. Matter of fact, I, I, when I took a class on the Reformation, um, Michael Reeves was saying that, um, that during, during these years, the most preached book um, of the Bible during that period of church history because it was, it was, um, it was a book that uh, spoke much about the love, love between um, a husband and a wife. Um, what's, what's the book? What do you think the book's, book is? Song of Solomon? It's like, like if you ever, maybe, maybe you've heard a sermon series on the Song of Solomon. If you, if you have, I'd like to hear it. And just, it would be interesting just because it wouldn't be the first to go to. For them, it was one that was most preached. I say all that because these guys, these, like, sometimes names can just pop up. It's like, I don't know who these guys are. These guys are solid, solid lovers of God and men who feared God and loved the people of God and loved the word and, and, and believed in the spirit. So these are reformed sealers. They, they generally identify spirit baptism with the sealing of the Holy Spirit described in Ephesians 1.13. We talked about that a couple of weeks back. This passage in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantor of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So for them, you know, there's some argument about like, okay, well, well, even in that statement in Ephesians 1, was it, was it when they believed or was it sometime afterwards? For them, they believe it's an experiential event subsequent to regeneration and therefore to be sought after. So there's regeneration that happens where you get saved, indwelled by the Spirit, but there's this subsequent action that takes place where there's, they called it, where the sealing happened, the sealing of the Holy Spirit happened. And what happens there at that point is there is this profound, inner, direct assurance of salvation as over against an assurance which one would kind of deduce by biblical truth. You know, it was, it's more like the Spirit affirms with my spirit that, that I am his. And I just know, I know it so powerfully, so deeply. And it produces power for ministry and witness, joy and a sense of God's glorious presence. This is what Lloyd-Jones specifically taught. And Lloyd-Jones was the only one of these guys who had any sense, who, who weren't what's, what, what the, he was the only one that was a continuationist. He was the only one who believed the gifts of the spirit continued. Everybody else, John Owen, Thomas Goodwin, Richard Sibbs, all were like, hey, like the miraculous gifts have ceased when the apostles died or uh, that kind of thing. So the reality is, is when Lloyd-Jones speaks about it in his book, Joy Unspeakable in particular, he speaks about it with this passion and desire and purpose. And he's very logical, very logically minded. And he's, he's just saying, um, the baptism of the Spirit is when the Spirit seals you and it's something that's after regeneration, something that is subsequent to following regeneration. It might be very close to regeneration. It might be seconds after regeneration, but it's not the same thing as regeneration. Okay, so it's like you could be saved, regenerated, born again, indwelled by the Spirit, but there's a subsequent move of the Spirit to empower you with significant assurance and with power for ministry. 
And this is what, this is what Lloyd-Jones speaks on. That I would encourage you to read Joy Unspeakable if you haven't read Joy Unspeakable, because even if you come to a place where you're like, yeah, I don't know, um, which is totally fine, really. It's just more like it kind of goes back to my first week where it's posture. It's this sense of like, like it's, is there something about what Lloyd-Jones is talking about that just kind of is like, huh. Like maybe there's something to that. Like that, that whether you decide that it's called baptism of the Spirit or fillings of the Spirit when it comes to the end of these two weeks, you know, is, is, uh, is not necessarily the important piece. It is the... The, the positioning, the posturing of yourself, of ourselves, to want what guys like this are talking about. Um, and, uh, but anyway, that's one, the Reformed Sealers. Uh, here's an example of Lloyd-Jones' appeal in the book uh, that I just wrote, wrote in here. Uh, here were men, these are the disciples, here were men who had been with Jesus during the three years. They had heard his preaching, they'd seen his miracles. They'd seen him crucified, they'd seen him die. They saw his body taken down and buried in a grave, and they'd seen the empty grave. Not only that, they had seen him with their naked eyes as he had appeared to them in the upper room and in various other places, and they had received his teaching and his exposition of the Old Testament, and here he was with them at the moment as they were standing together in the Mount of Olives. Well, you would have thought, well, what more do you need? Here are men who have obviously had the best training conceivable in order to make them preachers. They've all got the facts. They have even witnessed them. What more can be needed? Yet our Lord says, stay where you are. You need something. You need power. And that's, of course, what happened to them on the day of Pentecost. Um, let me go back to Luke 24. And Jesus himself says, so wait there until you receive power from on high from the Father. And so the same, and Lloyd-Jones is saying what's happening in Acts 2 is this reality um, that Jesus speaks of, John the Baptist speaks of, Jesus speaks of in both Luke 24 and Acts 1. And Joel speaks of in Joel 2. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones again says this, all I'm concerned to put to you is this. And here's the posture thing. Do you know anything about this spiritual power, this spiritual realm. Is not this the thing that the church has lost? You know, when the Spirit of God comes even upon the most ordinary man, he can make a giant out of him that can shake a meeting and pass on an inspiration to others and transform them. That's God's way. That's the Christian church. That's New Testament Christianity. <clears throat> to me, that's very compelling. Whether I agree with Lloyd-Jones entirely or not, the heart behind that, the desire for that is like um, stirring. Well, those are the reform sealers. There's more to it, right, to talk about. And, um, but, uh, but I chose to focus on Lloyd-Jones. So the Wesleyans now, um, advocates of the doctrine of entire sanctification. So this would be uh, the Wesleyan church. This would be the Nazarene church as well, the kind of... Uh, Holiness, the, the, the entire sanctification churches. Um, we, um, are you familiar with Oswald Chambers, my most for his highest? That, you know, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, he's this kind of guy as well. Um, I grew up, I grew up reading my most for his highest. He, he may as well have been Baptist for me growing up, right? But he's Wesleyan. So anyway, um, so interestingly, uh, when Joy and I, uh, graduated from Bible college, we attended a Nazarene church, a small little church plant, because we wanted to participate. We were part of a big Baptist church of 2,000 people, and there's like, I mean, there's opportunities to serve, but, you know, us and 1,000 other people. So but there was this little Nazarene church. We loved the pastor, 
we didn't really know much about Nazarene doctrine or Wesleyan doctrine, but we had heard him teach and preach, and so we loved him. And we went there and started serving a church of like 35 people, and it just was a great, great time. Well, he moved off to another church. We got this older pastor, older Nazarene pastor that came in, who was also a great man, but he really, really highlighted this doctrine entire sanctification. He was a true Nazarene. So whereas, whereas Mike, Pastor Mike before, he did not focus on this at all. He just really didn't, I mean, I didn't know anything about entire sanctification until uh, the second pastor came. So every week uh, he would preach on this. And it was the baptism of the Spirit, what was happening, and it, baptism of the Spirit for entire sanctification. That is that you don't, you would be freed, not just, not just because you have Christ's righteousness and delivered from sin, but you like literally did not struggle with sin anymore. Or did not sin anymore is the way that he described it. Now, they had altar calls every week and guess who was there? I, was, I wanted that. And I was like, I'm, I'm wanting to go down. If this is true, if this is true, I'm, I'm all in. I wanna be entirely sanctified. Wouldn't that be awesome? And so we sat down with him a couple, a number of times and, and we were 20, 20 one, 22, and he was, you know, he was old, like 50-something probably, and, uh, um, but he was, he would, I, I said to him, I said, so you're telling me you don't sin? And he said, he said, no, I don't, I don't wrestle with sin anymore. He said, I make mistakes, but I don't sin anymore. Oh, okay, I, I see. Well, I make plenty of mistakes too, so just happen to call them sin. So anyway, but, but that's like, I'm not saying that all Nazarenes are like that. I'm just saying there's a reality of like, that is taught in the churches, and there is this reality of when people have gone forward, there, there is power that takes place. There, there, is a, there is a, call it what you will, they call it baptism of the Spirit. I would say, well, I don't, I don't I don't think it was baptism of the Spirit because of what we'll say in a few moments, but it's like, but there's something, something there. The power of the Spirit comes and delivers them and gives them specific victory over sin. And this is what, this is what Wesley taught, what these guys taught. So he taught a second transforming work of grace distinct from and subsequent to the new birth in which the Spirit roots out of the Christian heart all sinful motivation. Man, this just sounds awesome. The result is that the whole of his, that is the Christian's mental and emotional energy is henceforth channeled into love for God and for others, love that is Christ-like and supernatural, strong and steady, purposeful and passionate and free from any contrary or competing affection whatsoever. This state of perfection, according to Wesley, occurs instantaneously through the same insistent, expectant, empty-handed faith through which we receive the grace of justification. One may still lack knowledge and act foolishly, but such mistakes are not to be regarded as moral transgressions. Perfection, then, is primarily a matter of love for God and men being the constant driving force in one's life. On occasion, both Wesley and his followers would refer to this experience as the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so um, I don't know if you guys know Wesleyans or if you know Nazarenes. Um, um, this is what this is what they this is what they believe, and um, and we'll get to the questions later in small groups. But like, would we rather than saying that's ridiculous or that's wrong, 
would we not be humble to say, like we disagree with, with, with the definitions maybe, but like the longing and the pursuit, I want that too. Third, the Keswick movement, Hannah Waddell Smith, F.B. Meyer. If you ever, ever read F.B. Meyer, the guy's an amazing preacher and commentator. Andrew Murray, R.A. Torrey. Um, Torrey followed uh, Dwight Moody at Moody. Uh, A.J. Gordon, A.B. Simpsons, the founder, uh, Canadian, uh, founder of um, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance uh, Church. And um, solid, for the most part, really solid people. Andrew Murray, if you ever read Andrew Murray, Andrew Murray on prayer is ridiculous, amazing. Andrew Murray on Abide in Christ. Oh man, what a book. Just so rich, so wonderful. Um, so the Keswick movement, uh, according to the book that was mentioned earlier, the Keswick view preserves the Wesleyan two-stage grid. So we got regeneration and then baptism of the spirit, but it rejects the view that believers' hearts may become perfect in love. The second work of grace was not an eradicating of inbred sin, but rather living a life of victory in which a perfection of deeds is achieved. Now, I don't know if that to you doesn't sound very similar to what the Wesleyans said. I just, so the second work of grace was seen as an endowment with power rather than a purification from sin. In other words, where, where, the, where, where at least what I understand the Nazarene church would say or Wesleyan church would say is there is an eradication of the sinful nature. Okay, the, the, that, that sense. Not, not only do you have Christ's righteousness, um, but really there is an eradication. There is a, an entire sanctification thing that happens. Um, where the Keswick movement would say is like, well, it's not an eradication, but it's actually just power to say no. A power to overcome sin. Um, and overcome the wiles of the enemy. Uh, the key to Keswick theology, a uh, passive view of faith in which one confesses one's inability, reconciles, reckons oneself dead to sin, uh, much emphasis on Romans 6, and rests in Jesus. Um, and, uh, and sometimes they've gone like way too, way too far in that, right? Like just like let go, let God, or, like just kind of, you know, it's just very passive. Um, whereas Colossians, right, Colossians 3 speaks of doing what to sin? You know, putting it to death. <laughs> it's like there's action. Um, anyway, this occurs as a crisis event and issues in the higher life wherein the believer experiences victory over all known sin by way of power that comes by baptism of the Spirit to be able to overcome sin. The emphasis is not on eradication again, but on an endowment of power for obedience and ministry, which is similar there's a lot of similarities in all of this. Similar to even Lloyd-Jones at the beginning, one of the Reformed sealers and somebody who we respect very greatly and there's just some similar things about it. Meyer, F.B. Meyer says, um, he then sensed a voice, uh, sorry, let me back up. Um, not all within the Keswick movement believed that the spirit baptism was experiential or felt. F.B. Meyer, for example, relates his prayer to the Father for this work of the Spirit as follows. He says, my Father, if there is one soul more than another within the circle of these hills that needs the gift of Pentecost, it is I. But I am too weary to think or feel or pray intensely. Is it not possible to receive it without the tide of emotion which so often accompanies its advent or renewal in the soul? If you hear what he's saying there, He's like longing, longing for 
emotion, longing for, you ever, you ever been there? Yes, right? Like Sunday mornings, songs come, we're singing this great song, and it seems like other people are really getting into it, and you just feel dull. It's kind of where he's at. It's like, is there, is there not, is it, is it, is it possible to actually receive the gift of the Spirit and not, and not feel jazzed about everything? Meyer says, he then sensed a voice saying this, claim and receive it by an act of faith apart from feeling. As they share in God's forgiving grace as won for thee by the dying Christ, so they share in the Pentecostal gift as held for thee by the glorified Christ. And as thou didst take the former, so thou must take the latter and reckon that it is thine by a faith which is utterly indifferent to the presence or absence of resulting joy. <clears throat> That's compelling to me too. I want joy. I want joy unspeakable, filled with glory. Right? I want that every stinking day. Every hour, I mean, you hear it in hymns, old hymns, you know. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, and uh, I can't think of what the song is, but, uh, and now I'm happy all the day. That, that song, whatever that song is, um, that reality is how, like, oh, that's what we want. We want, we all, we all want to be happy. We all want to be joyful. So being joyful in Christ is wonderful. He's just saying, Hey, claim and receive it. Or he's saying, Jesus said this to him, claim and receive it by an act of faith. It's just interesting. Turn to Colossians for a moment. Because I'm thinking, okay, he, he was praying. This is a godly man. Knows scripture. Loves, loves God. Loves the church. Loves, so loves his people. All, all that. Um, and, and he's saying, hey, like I, I prayed this and I, here's what I heard God say. And so there's a way to discern that, right? There's a way, okay, is that, is that scriptural at all? Is there, is there anything that's like real about that? That's like, or is that just like some, because somebody's speaking to him. Who is it? And I think of Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, which is by faith, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And it made me think that when he said that, just, hey, like, as you received Christ by faith, keep walking by faith. Pursue the Spirit by faith. You might not feel it every moment, but there is an endowment of power that, can ha that happens um, nevertheless. It's just kind of inter interesting, compelling. That's another group, Keswick's. Uh, Pentecostalism, uh, specifically the Assemblies of God. The classical Pentecostal view is clearly articulated in their statement of fundamental truths um, online. You can read these online. So point seven was the promise of the Father. And this is what they say. All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek the promise of the Father, the baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all the early Christian church. With it comes the endowment of power for life and service, the bestowment of the gifts, and their uses in the work of the ministry. And they quote these, or they, they put in these verses. This wonderful experience is distinct from and subsequent to the experience of the new birth. And they quote Acts 10 and Acts 11 and 15, different stories in Scripture where it seems as though there's a distinction between like some regenerate, where there's somebody a group of Christians who were regenerate and they had never heard of the Holy Spirit and they received the Holy Spirit when, they were, when uh, Paul laid, their, laid his hands on them. Um, 
Point eight, the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Ghost. So the, there's the promise of the Father. So pursuit of that and an expectation of a subsequent work of the Spirit that they call baptism of the Spirit. And now there's the evidence, point eight, of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Um, the baptism of believers in the Holy Ghost is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance. And they point to Acts 2, verse 4. The speaking in tongues in this instance is the same in essence as the gift of tongues, 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 10, and 28. 12, 4 through 10 and verse 28, but different in purpose and use. Now again, that's what the Assembly of God Church would say and, and um, other uh, Pentecostals as well. So they believe that there not only is there the promise of the Father, but something that we should pursue subsequent to, and they're calling that subsequent action of the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit, and that baptism of the Holy Spirit, when truly baptized in the Holy Spirit, they will speak in tongues. That'll be an initial evidence of, of, um, uh, of, the, of the baptism. And that, that, that actual initial continuing gift of tongues may or may not last, but it is an initial outpouring. Is there anything else you would add to that, Dan, that initial, right now? Dan, Dan came from an AG church. Anybody else come from an AG church here? Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. Sorry, I forgot CLC. So, yeah. Um, anything? Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Pseudo AG. All right. Um, so there are three fundamental elements in the classical view, what we just talked about, of Pentecostalism. First, there's the doctrine of subsequence. Spirit baptism is always subsequent to and therefore distinct from conversion. The time intervening between the two events may be momentary or conceivably years. Nine years, for example, in the case of the story that we told at the beginning, where the young lady was saved, but then there was this other moment. Uh, second, there's an emphasis on conditions. Uh, and depending on whom you read, the conditions on which spirit baptism is suspended may include repentance, confession, faith, prayers, uh, waiting, or tarrying. Um, uh, there's a story of uh, um, R.A. Torrey. He's somebody we mentioned a short while ago. That R.A. Torrey and Dwight Moody went out east, and they were pursuing um, a pouring out of the spirit. Uh, and so they went out on a hill, mountain, uh, out east, and they stayed there. And I forget how long they stayed there, but they prayed, they, they had a tarrying prayer, and they prayed for hours and uh, a handful of days, I believe, until the Spirit was poured out on them, which happened. Um, and remarkable story. Um, so the obvious danger, so, uh, tarrying, seeking, yielding, the obvious danger here is in dividing the Christian life in such a way that salvation becomes a gift to the sinner, whereas the fullness of the Spirit becomes a reward to the saint. Uh, but all is of grace, all comes with Christ. Third, they emphasize the doctrine of initial evidence. The initial and physical evidence of having been baptized in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. Uh, and if one has not spoken in tongues, one has not been baptized in the Spirit. According to this view, Paula was certainly saved when she accepted Christ at church camp, but she was not baptized in the Spirit until college, the proof of which is her experience of speaking in tongues for the first time when her friends prayed for her. Um, so note, well, a distinction is often made between tongues as a sign, which all Spirit-baptized believers experience but may subsequently lose, and tongues as a gift, which is a permanent gift bestowed on only some. Um, okay. Not all classical Pentecostals affirm the doctrine of initial 
evidence. So one Bosworth, uh, famous healing evangelist and members of the OG, uh, member of the OG uh, um, from its founding in 1914, he dissented, um, but he resigned uh, from them when they reaffirmed its teaching. Most recently, uh, Gordon Fee, who just passed away last week, two weeks ago, um, uh, has rejected all three of these doctrines relating to spirit baptism while yet remaining within the assembly's denomination. And there's a, there's a link that I'll send out to you because you can't click on a paper, um, but there is, the, there'll be that link that I could, uh, you could read. It's, it's a journal article, so it's, it's just a photocopied, photocopied thing, but um, you could also look it up uh, if you want. It's interesting, Gordon Fee would be another, another just godly, godly man, loves Jesus, loves the work of the Holy Spirit, and stayed in the AG, and he, um, uh, AG denomination, and and yet um, did not agree with, with seven and eight of their statement of faith. Just inter interesting. Um, there's a good book, uh, another book that I think is really helpful as a counter pointing to Gordon Fee um, that I really enjoyed um, and go to regularly actually as a, by, by um, William Menzies, M-E-N-Z-I-E-S, William Menzies. Um, and I think the title is Spirit and Power. And I don't agree with everything he says either, but it's like, it's interesting how, they inter how he interacts with Fee on this and Dunn, the, another guy that I mentioned earlier, and just interacting and, and asking questions. And there's no like vitriol. There's no, there's no, these guys are just whatever. It's like, hey, love Fee, love Gordon Fee. And it was just like, what, what about this? And it was just walking through that and trying to understand and trying to grow together. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a man when I was going through pastor's college, um, an, another um, Pentecostal, I don't know if he was AG or not, but he was a guy named Doug Oss, O-S-S. -S. Um, just when I read him, I was just so um, desirous of what he was speaking about, what he was speaking of. And, uh, and again, it's that posture, being able to look through things and just consider, like, I don't know if it needs to be defined that way and defined this way, but I want the same desire, the same desire. Um, sacramental view, Roman Catholicism. Um, although this interpretation is found predominantly among Roman Catholics, occasionally one finds a representative of the sacramental view in certain Protestant groups. Uh, specifically Lutherans and, and Presbyterians to some extent. The original Roman Catholic view of spirit baptism is that it is a release of the spirit, a revitalization or flowering of the sacramental grace received in Christian initiation, conversion, breaking through into the personal conscious experience of the believer. Uh, one Catholic theologian argues that every member of the church who received the sacrament of water baptism was baptized in the spirit at the same time. This grace has, as it were, lain dormant and at a particularly moment in time or over a longer period, it breaks through into the awareness of the individual. It's this conscious experience which is generally called the baptism of the Holy Spirit in charismatic circles. When Cardinal writes this, the newness then is of a particular quantity. We are concerned here with a new coming of the Spirit already present of an outpouring which does not come from outside but springs up from within. Uh, literally, the, the, again, the guy that, that 
uh, Storm speaks of uh, early, a, a book, a book that he speaks of, challenges calling such an experience new in any sense of the term. The major disadvantage, he says, of this interpretation is that the renewal experience cannot be seen as something new or something that God is doing in people's lives at the time in which they experience it. As a release of the Spirit, it's not a coming or receiving of the Spirit, but simply the activation of what has been received at a previous sacramental rite. The change that takes place in a Christian's life is not interpreted as a result of any new or direct action of God. It is merely a change in the believer's subjective awareness. So considering this emphasis on the release or flowering or emergence of something always hitherto present, it may be questioned whether the sacramental view of spirit baptism should even be regarded as a two-stage approach. Uh, Catholic emphasis is on the initial deposit of the grace of the Holy Spirit at baptism with a subsequent subjective apprehension or experience of the Spirit's presence. Okay, we'll move on from that. The contemporary charismatic view. Uh, Generally speaking, most charismatics speak of a two-stage doctrine of subsequence. Many, however, reject any conditions which spirit baptism is suspended or given and do not believe all spirit-baptized Christians necessarily speak in tongues. A growing number of charismatics are beginning to question the doctrine of subsequence. An interesting charismatic variation on spirit baptism is, the proposed, is one proposed by Charles Hummel in his book, Fire in the Fireplace. He argues for two spirit baptisms, one described by Paul for initiation and incorporation into the body of Christ, this occurs at conversion, and two, another described by Luke for empowering for service and ministry, this latter baptism subsequent to conversion is also called a filling. That's compelling to me too. That's, I, I feel like, like I told Dan before this, I told Mark before this, I said, I just feel fickle. I feel fickle in this. Man, I go back and forth between different like, do, do you see connection points in all of these approaches? And the desire behind all these approaches and the biblical realities, even with people that we would disagree with and probably not attend that church, that kind of church. We would say, in one situation, probably like, very likely not attend the church. So it's just like, but, but there's longing and there's like promises trying to be laid hold of rather than it just being this theological thing that is just kind of complicated and so we push it off to the side, which is what I grew up with. So an integrative approach, the theology of the third wave That sounds awesome, doesn't it? The theology of the third wave. Uh, The first wave, if you're not familiar with these waves, waves of the spirit, and yes, they're waves um, of the spirit's river of water, I guess, of life. Um, The first wave is understood to be the Pentecostal movement begun in the early 20th century. Gordon Fee gives insight into the Pentecostal mindset. And this, this, again, this gets to the heart. And I'm just asking us, Do we have the heart of those initial Pentecostals? We may not agree with where they ended up going, but do we have this heart? This is what is, to me, this is what most important, this is what is most important to us, of us learning about these things, growing through these things, is posture towards the realities of the promise of the Father. The Pentecostal experience historically came out of a deep dissatisfaction with things as they are in light of things as they were in the New Testament church. Plus, a deep spiritual hunger for the way things were in the early centuries. Minus the persecution, maybe. They belonged to that tradition of piety that cried out, Oh God, fill me with yourself and your power or I die. 
And out of that hunger and cry, they experienced a mighty encounter with God the Holy Spirit. Azusa Street. Revival broke out. For first wave believers, Pentecostals, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was what took place in the life of a spiritually hungry believer subsequent to their regeneration. The initial evidence was this subsequent baptism took place the initial evidence that this subsequent baptism took place was the reception of the gift of tongues in the believer and all the gifts were available to the believer. That's in Systematic Theology by Grudem. That's who was telling, telling some of the story. So, and the reality is, it's not, just, it's, it's not just that they said, this is what must be, it's that that's what happened. So, so it's best for us, I think, in this moment, to just kind of say, hmm, okay, interesting. Instead of crazy Pentecostals. Um, but that was the first wave. Second wave came, charismatics. Uh, charismatic movement in the middle of the 20th century, 60s and 70s. Our denomination, Sovereign Grace Churches, was came out of this, came, I don't mean came out of it, but they, they grew up in it. This was, they were part of the Jesus movement and they were, they were crazy. People of Destiny International was our name right at the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just a remarkably beautiful name. Um, so, and we were just, there, there were people, old, old people mocking it at the conference just a couple of weeks last week. Um, but some of the songs that came out of it, some of, the, some of the miracles that took place, some of the experiences, there was like strong realities of this, of this growth in, uh, in, these, in these men and women. Um, so the charismatic movement, again, among the mainline denominations, even the uh, Roman Catholic Church, charismatic Catholics, I, grew up, I heard about them in the 90s, never met one. Um, charismatic believers understood that all the gifts of the Spirit were available to them, and rather than form their own congregations, mostly viewed themselves as a force for renewal within existing churches. I cite that from Grudem's book as well. Third wave, then, is a term used to identify evangelicals, that is, people who believe that Jesus is the only way to God, to believe God's word is inerrant, absolutely true, from cover to cover, and trustworthy. And again, uh, the gospel is the means for salvation, and not as compared to others who would say there's Jesus plus something else um, in whatever nuance that they want to speak of. Um, it's not a political term, right? It should not be a political term. It should be a. It should be the reality of evangel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So um, it's a term used to identify evangelicals who not only believe in but consistently practice and minister in the full range of the Spirit's gifts. According to this view, spirit baptism describes what happens when one becomes a Christian. Therefore, all Christians, by definition, have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. However, there are also multiple subsequent experiences of the Spirit's activity. After conversion, which again, they're saying that is, is the... Is, 
the baptism of the Spirit that Paul would speak of in 1 Corinthians 12, which we'll get to in a moment. After that, there are other things, other things that happen, other subsequent experiences. After conversion, the Spirit may yet come with varying degrees of intensity, uh, wherein the Christian is overwhelmed or empowered or anointed or in some sense endued with power. This release of new power, this manifestation of the Spirit's intimate presence is most likely to be identified with what the New Testament calls the filling of the Spirit, not baptism of the Spirit. So in the filling of the Spirit, and John Wimber of Vineyard Churches, uh, at least he was the founder of the Vineyard Churches, uh, he has an uh, articulate advocate, he was an articulate advocate of this view. He says, how do we experience spirit baptism? He said, it comes at conversion. Uh, If you've ever watched anything by John Wimber or read anything by John Wimber, you'd swear he was like, like he would be more in line with Pentecostals in, in, in this view. But he says, hey, no, actually baptized in the Spirit at conversion. Conversion and Holy Spirit baptism, simultaneous experiences. The born-again experience is the consummate charismatic experience, is what he says in his book, PowerPoints. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 12 is the principal text for this topic. And here's what Paul says. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So according to third wave proponents, the most likely interpretation is that Paul is using these two vivid metaphors to describe our experience of the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion, at the time when we became members of the body of Christ. All baptized into one body. All were made to drink of one spirit. Just like this reality. Baptism or immersion in the Holy Spirit and drinking to the fill of the Holy Spirit, the purpose or goal of which is to unite us all in one body. Thus, he says, our saturation with the Spirit, our experience of being engulfed in and deluged by and inundated by the Holy Spirit results in our participation in the spiritual organism, the body of Christ, the church. It is, for instance, when we are regenerated and indwelt by the Spirit, Third waivers would say, Paul also would say, mm, uh, it's like, that's what happened. You were baptized in the spirit into one body. Bap- this, this reality, this, this term baptism is meant for that. Some suggest that in verse 13b, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul may be alluding to the Old Testament imagery of the golden age to come in which the land and its people have the spirit poured out on them. Three passages there. So the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44. I will pour out water on my thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Or Ezekiel 39. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord. Thus, conversion is an experience of the Holy Spirit analogous to the outpouring of a sudden flood or rainstorm on parts ground transforming dry and barren earth into a well-watered garden. Uh, Gordon Fee, again, the Assembly of God guy who um, didn't agree with uh, AG on, the, on those points, he says, hey, such expressive metaphors, like that is the immersion in the Spirit and drinking to the fill of the Spirit, imply a much greater experiential and visibly manifest reception of the Spirit than many have tended to experience in subsequent church history. Paul may appeal to the common experience of spirit as the presupposition for the unity of the body precisely because, as in Galatians 3, 
2 through 5, the Spirit was a dynamically experienced reality which had happened to all. Now, before I get to final thoughts, let me just say, and, and to, uh, yeah. Um, I said to you, I've kind of gone back and forth over the years. I, I wrote a paper on, on subsequence. Um, that the Spirit, there's a baptism of the Spirit that's subsequent to and I'm going to probably talk about some of that next week a little bit more, but it's like attached to fillings. Um, and I'm just in, kind of in, in process in this um, area. What I'm not in process with is the pursuit of the Spirit and desiring more of the Spirit and that there is more to be had of the Spirit, not because, not because we only have received a portion of the Spirit, but because the spirit is infinite and there's more to experience, more to have. Um, so my, my biggest, our, our biggest hope is that we're just like humble theologians, humble wanting to walk in this together, figuring it out. So final thoughts, the third way of view of the baptism in the spirit is a very appropriate understanding of describing our experience at the spirit of conversion at the, of the spirit at conversion. We are immersed and submerged in him and forever enjoy his presence and power. And every Christian is baptized in the Spirit at the new birth, not subsequent to it. Um, and that's the, that statement, that last phrase, that, that last parenthetical statement was one that I had to really kind of wrestle through to be able to say that every Christian is baptized in the Spirit at the new birth, not subsequent to it. That there is something specific that happens that Paul says, baptize in one body in the Spirit by King Jesus, not by the Spirit, but by King Jesus, in the, in, in the Spirit, by Jesus, in the Spirit, into the church. That reality of like this, this regeneration and baptism and flooding with the Spirit doesn't mean we've experienced everything, right? But it's like, there, it seems as though Paul would, Paul would say, baptism is that. My problem through the years has been, Luke seems to speak of something a little different but not in opposition to Paul, um, but, but it, makes me, it makes me just kind of say, hey, how important are words here? You know, because wait, wait here until you're baptized with the Spirit from on high, is what Jesus says. Or what, what that, you're, you're, you'll be baptized, you'll be filled with, and you'll be filled with power. John, John says, you know, that Jesus is gonna, is gonna baptize with Spirit and fire. And so in Acts 1, there's that, there's that connection. And then what happens is they're filled with power from on high. Luke 24, Acts 1, 8, for ministry. So there's something specifically different there, but there is a reality of like, hey, you know, that actually is like the first generation of the Spirit coming in power. There's something unique about that moment in history as well. So it just makes me just say, okay, well, what, what is it I'm trying to get at here? What's happening? What is it I want? What is it that the scripture teaches? What is it that we teach here? What, what we teach would be more of the bent of third wave, saying that we believe that, that when you are born again, that you are baptized, 1 Corinthians 12, baptized in one spirit into the body of Christ. Some would say 
point two, that the biblical usage demands that we apply the terminology of spirit baptism to the conversion experience of all believers. And I'm generally okay with that. And yet I, want, I would want to sit down with someone and try to help, try to understand what they mean by baptism. Rather than just, if they say, hey, you need to be baptized in the spirit. Um, and I'm like, oh, I've already been baptized in the spirit. Thank you very much. Um, I would want to sit down with them and say, what do, you, like, what do you mean by that? Because I might very well agree 100% with them. <laughs> you know? Do I want that? Do you want to pray for me right now? To pray. But I believe that the Spirit, we do believe as pastors, believe that the Spirit has, we have, Jesus has baptized us in one body, in one Spirit. Um, but this in no way restricts the activity of the Spirit to conversion. Um, it's not as though we are regenerated and indeed baptized in the spirit at the moment of conversion and then like we're just like kind of left on our own and even indwelt by the spirit to just kind of like meander along and have moments of like maybe some increased joy along the way. It, the New Testament endorses and encourages multiple subsequent experiences of the spirit's power and presence and so we'll talk a little bit more about this next week about fillings but we're just trying to say hey like Baptisms and fillings. You call it baptisms, I call it fillings. I call it baptisms, you call it fillings. Are we talking about the same thing or are we talking about like what the Pentecostals believe in like you're born again and then there's this other thing, there's other thing that happens and it creates this tension between like, like hey, there's the Christians and then there's the spirit-filled Christians. And we're saying like there is no such thing as a non-spirit-filled Christian. Um, so, and we don't think the Bible would say that either. Evangelicals are certainly within orthodoxy, that's us, in affirming that all Christians have experienced spirit baptism at conversion, or at the very least, regeneration by the Spirit. But they are wrong in minimizing and sometimes even denying the reality of subsequent additional experiences of the Spirit in the course of the Christian life. So we will always, by God's grace, we will always be wanting, desiring, praying for fresh empowerments of the Spirit, fresh fillings of the Spirit. Um, to, not to make things confusing, but if somebody prays for the Spirit to be poured out on us in a baptism, I'm fine with that. If their heart is that we need more of the, need more of the Spirit. <coughs> Charismatics are right in affirming the reality and importance of post-conversion encounters with the Spirit that empower, enlighten, and transform, and some would say they're wrong in calling this experience spirit baptism. I'm just saying, I don't know that they're entirely wrong. I just think it's conf it gets confusing if we're, not, if we're not using terminology in the same way. So I took way too much time to, and didn't leave any time for you guys to ask questions, but maybe instead of going into small groups, we can just ask a couple of questions. We've got like um, enough, enough time for like two <coughs> or thoughts. Thoughts or questions? Anybody?
uh, the holiness movement, meaning uh, Pentecostals in particular? Yeah, unless. Uh, okay, is that your experience as well? Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I don't. I don't know what the difference would be. Um, I don't know enough about them to be able to say what the difference is. But it sounds the same. I don't know that they would. I don't know that Mennonites would call it baptism of the spirit. Or anybody else know? Yeah. I'm sure there's a book out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure, but it sounds it sounds very similar. Um, and and again, the thing the thing is, I I just I think we really need to walk in humility with 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 other churches that 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 we might not see eye to eye on everything with, right? But like, except for the gospel, um, we still need to be gracious in speech and all that. I'm just saying that like, there are things that we just would not be able to unite with another church on if they don't believe the gospel. Um, uh, but, uh, or, and, and, what I, and, and broaden, broadening that out, have some sort of um, aberrational kind of understanding of Christ um, or the Trinity, uh, that maybe they don't believe in the Trinity believe that there's the Father and there's the Son, but not the Spirit, or maybe there's just the Father, whatever. So we, we just can't, we can't see eye to eye on that kind of stuff and wouldn't be able to join up. But with other, with things concerning the Spirit, I look at all these, I, I remember I was warned against Keswick's. Um, I was warned against Nazareth or, or Wesleyan's. My nephew, nephew and niece and their kids all go to a Wesleyan church. And when I talk with them, you know, there's just the reality of like, and they love Jesus with all their heart, you know, and they like, do I agree with them concerning certain things? Um, like, no, but, it, but there's, there's, there's a desire, there's this desire that, the, that they have, they're trying, they're trying to address something that is very, very important and necessary and trying to deal with it, you know? So rather than, I, I just, I think that, I mean, is this not kind of our experience? If this is like the Holy Spirit and we get a little bit of teaching on this and it's a little confusing or, it's, or something happens that's just like, whoa, like um, that we just kind of, I, 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 I just can't, I can't. Rather than, rather than humbly kind of saying, huh. So Christ is being made much of. We know that. The primary role, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the primary role of the Spirit is to make much of Christ. It's not the only role of the Spirit, but the primary role is to make much of Christ. So Christ is being made much of, and something strange happens in the church. Um, let's, just, let's, just call, let's just call something. We'll, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks. Well, after Thanksgiving, probably. Um, somebody, somebody gets prayed over, and they fall over and are out. Now, that's never happened at Sovereign Grace Church Dayton. It's happened at CLC? Really? Oh, okay. Happened in Kettering? Stuff like that. Okay, so slain in the spirit, call it whatever you want, right? Some people would just see that walk out that door. I'm never going back to that church. I'm not saying we should be looking for that and just like, man, that's, that's, 
that's spiritual life. You know, fall over. It's, it's that it's that we want to walk humbly and be led humbly as well, protecting the sheep, including ourselves, protecting us from aberrational theology. And yet, and yet when something happens where we, like, something happens that's kind of a little bit unexplainable and like weird, I think we just need to, we need to be really slow to speak and be, and, and think through it and just ultimately consider uh, what, what, what would the Lord want us to, to pursue here? We're not going to pursue specifically people being slain in the spirit, but if something were to happen or if somebody spoke in tongues that, you know, came up to the microphone and had a tongue, that'd be a first for our church as well. Something we would like to see happen um, with the interpretation. Um, it's happened in small groups before, and it's just let's just call it. It's just a little, little strange. Little strange. It's weird. It was weird to the. I mean, the people in Acts two. They were like, "These guys are drunk. What is going on?" Some, most of them heard heard you know them speaking their own language, right? But then some of them thought they were nuts. Um, but for us, I think we just want to we want to say. This is not what tonight's about, right? We're not talking about this stu- all this stuff tonight, but like reality is, is just this humbly saying, hey, you know what? Here's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, the, is part of the Trinity. Remember I said a couple weeks ago, like the, let's, let's try not to call him the third person of the Trinity because it's like he's not the least person of the Trinity. He's just be mindful of that, but he's part of the Trinity. And he is the one who is the gift. He's the gift of the empowering presence of God in our lives today, so why would we throw them away? <laughs> why would we just say, mm, yeah, it's a little too messy or a little too confusing, and I got to get all my ducks in a row before, but to say, hey, um, uh, I know that's not what you asked. I've gone, I've gone past that, so, um, but just, uh, just that posture, right? And so when I, when I think of holy, like holiness or Nazarenes, that kind of thing, I just... I just, there was, a, there was a day, I think, when I probably was more like, um, they're wrong. Now I'm just like, yeah, I don't, agree, I don't agree with that, and I would go a different way, and I think it's potentially dangerous to believe certain things, and to, but, um, but yet their desire and intentionality is not wicked, you know? Um, and potentially, holiness movements also detract from the righteousness of Christ, and and speak, speak more about um, us being able to get righteous ourselves. And so that's, that's the danger. It's kind of the danger of the church I grew up in. We weren't a holiness church, but we we're fundamentals, fundamentalists. And so anyway, all right, uh, next, yeah. close yeah. yeah so my question is why does uh, fee 
it, yeah, fee, fee, the reason Fee doesn't agree, he would, I mean, the second two things would be like, I think more clear that why he didn't, why he didn't but it's subsequent. And so that's that paper that I'll send a link to, and it should take, take a moment to read, take, I mean, 15, 20 minutes to read the paper. But um, it's, it's, it's called the issue of subsequence. And for him, it had to do with how, in his experience, his understanding in the, in the Assembly of God churches or in Pentecostalism, that there was a creation of a two-tier Christianity. So there was the, those who came to faith, and then there are those who had a subsequent experience. Uh, when Joy and I were going to Bible college, we heard somebody, it wasn't an AG church, it was like a, it was like a life center kind of church, um, uh, whatever. Um, and, and they came and I sat down, and we overheard them saying, do those people have the Holy Spirit? And um, now, whatever they meant by that, I don't know. I did have somebody ask me a couple years ago, someone who's, someone who's been here for a while, they said, have you ever been baptized in the Spirit? And what they meant by that, uh, their, their spouse said to me, oh, what they mean by that is, do you speak in tongues? Um, and, uh, and so it is that, that's where Fee would say, and what we would say as well, it's hard it's hard to not see subsequent pneumatology or subsequent gift of the Spirit as, as not creating a two-tier Christianity, th those who have and those who have not. Um, whereas we would say, hey, everyone's got the Spirit, and we should all be pursuing the Spirit like crazy, you know, subsequent to is that... Well, and I know there's I know there's people in this room. Not to point point out certain people, but I know there's people that have been have had a a powerful subsequent move of the Spirit in them, and tongues was a part of it, right? So it's like I, I just think I think man, let's just be let's 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 be like uh, come Holy Spirit, come Jesus, pour out your Spirit on us and. And help us to walk humbly, to walk in the Spirit, walk by the power of the Spirit, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, all of that, have that posture. And I, 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 love, I love that. It's just, it's easy. It's easy to say it, and it's hard to actually live it, right? Hard, hard to actually, like, think about throughout the day. Like, first thing in the morning, Spirit, come, empower me today for for life and for ministry. Help my eyes to be set on Christ. Help me. He's doing that already. He's praying that way. He's already praying the will of God, Romans 8, but, but there's the power to, um, to move. Anyway, I'm sure the teachers downstairs are getting ticked off. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk more about it next week, and we'll talk more about fillings and, and, uh, and get into some broader things. So please, if you, if you can, come. Uh, then you'll get a week break, and then it'll be on for like three weeks, and then off for two weeks for Christmas, and, uh, and it will, we'll jump into a, probably a different topic in the, uh, in the winter, uh, New Year. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the gift We'll talk about it more on Sunday. I think it's just like this privilege, this, this uh, honor that we have of, 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 of having the Spirit, of, of being able to pursue 
the uh, work of the Spirit. So, Lord, would you help us even as we care for our families? Fill us afresh with your Spirit, Lord. Pour out your gifts on us for the common good of the church, for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.